0: Alrighty, we are now in 1 Peter, um, and I'm just going to let you know, you can go ahead and turn to 1 Peter. We're not even going to get all the way through the first two verses tonight. Uh, <laughs> I know you're surprised, and to be honest with you, we may be scrambling to even get that far, but I, there is so much here. As I was preparing this this lesson, I just kept saying, oh, we can't skip over that. Oh, we can't skip over that. And, and I didn't even feel bad that I feel like I'm Going too short on each of the things that I want to pull out, but God will take us where He wants us to go, uh, and so we will. I'm going to read to you the section that we're going to be studying. Uh, and then I'm going to begin breaking it down but now before I read it to you though uh, I want to just give you a brief introduction Uh, for those of you who have been a part of a a study of a book I will give you a brief introduction I don't go into great great detail to break down all the introduction stuff there are some wonderful materials out there that if you really want to know a whole lot more about the background and the authorship and the date and all this kind of stuff they can give you a whole lot I'm just going to give you a quick overview of that so we can get into looking at the actual text and breaking it down Uh, of course it says it was written by Peter, uh, the apostle of Jesus Christ. And we know him as Simon Peter. Uh, And uh, the interesting thing is, um, he's the one who wrote the letter, yet he wasn't the one who fully wrote the letter. And I'll explain that to you. Go in 1 Peter chapter 5 and look at verse 12. In 1 Peter chapter 5, it says in verse 12, with the help of Silas whom I regard as a faithful brother, I have written to you briefly, encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. You see here, he said that Silas helped him. Now, some say that he was the amanuensis or the scribe, that you know, Peter would, would quote it and he, he would write. It, it could be done a lot of ways. Some people think that, that Silas just carried it. There's obviously, if you take a look at this book, a lot more than just Silas carrying it, because actually there have been some who thought there's no way Peter could have written 1 Peter, because Peter did not have the scholarship to write the level of Greek writings that are here. In other words, the writing in the Greek language is so well done that it was only capable of being done with someone with a higher ability than Peter the fisherman. They're saying he could not have written like that. Most likely what happened was Peter wrote it. Silas then cleaned it up. You understand what I'm saying? Silas cleaned it up because Silas had that kind of a background and we see here Silas was involved in it. And so that doesn't take away... People say, well, Peter couldn't have wrote it. He can't write like that. Well, he didn't write like that. Silas helped him. And Silas most likely cleaned... It's like having an editor... Silas was probably the editor of his work. Now, when you get to 2 Peter, if Jesus tarries and we get to 2 Peter, um, the... Silas didn't help Peter write Second Peter, and Second Peter's writing is actually rougher than the, the style of Greek isn't as polished as in as First Peter is, and there's nobody questioning that Peter wrote Second Peter. All right, so uh, who wrote it? Peter did, but Silas definitely helped him. Uh, also, this letter was most likely written around the early 60s AD, 61 to 63 possibly. There's a couple reasons for that. Peter, we know, was martyred during the time of Nero's reign, or near the end of Nero's reign. Peter was put To death, Uh, and Nero's time came to the end around 67, 68 A.D. Now there are also, though, some seeming references and uh, similarities to Paul's uh, prison letters. Paul wrote Colossians and, excuse me, in Ephesians from prison and. And we're not going to do the time. Like I said, we could have, we could have spent all night just do, spending a study on the introduction. Uh, but if you were to do a study between passages in 1 Peter and passages in Colossians and passages in Ephesians, you're going to say, Wow, I think he was reading Paul's letters. And yes, he probably was. So since we know that Paul's letters of Colossians and Ephesians were written around 60 AD, chances are Peter's book was written between 61, 63, but before before 67, 60. When Nero was done So that's most likely the time of the writing And you know what, for most of us in here We say, who cares, we want to know what the book says And what God wants to tell us But for those who are into that, if you want more That'll just get you started Um, Now, the one thing we're going to deal with At the very end before we start with breaking the passage down Is where it was written from There's a lot of debate as to where it was written from The reason is Paul, uh, Peter says where he wrote it from and that's what's caused the debate doesn't that sound crazy? but Peter actually go back to uh, 1 Peter chapter 5 look at verse 13 Peter writes where he wrote it from and this is what's caused all the, all the question in 1 Peter chapter 5 look at verse 13 it says she who is in Babylon chosen together with you sends you her greetings and so does my son Mark and then he goes on and talks about finishes the book so, according to First Peter chapter five, uh, verse thirteen, where did he write it from? Babylon. Babylon. Well, now, theologians and scholars, and, and trust me, there's lots of people that I respect who have differing views than I do on this. But they, there are four reason, four explanations for what Babylon means. There are some that say Babylon means Rome. Then that's just a. a, a symbolic way of describing Rome, and they put this together because of the fact that he most likely was put to death in Rome and all this stuff, and they think he wrote from Rome, which is a possibility. But another possibility is there actually was a Babylonian uh, town in Egypt called Babylon, which was a military outpost, could be that he wrote from there. We don't know. Uh, There are also, some say that um, Babylon refers to Jerusalem, that he's actually writing from Jerusalem. Because we know, for a point, Peter was in Jerusalem, and then he was scattered. But then at the same time, we saw that he was back there for the Jerusalem council in Acts chapter 15. Some people think that that this is referring to uh, Jerusalem. And their explanation is from Revelation chapter 11, verse 8. So go to Revelation 11. And look at verse 8. talking about the two witnesses and how they're going to prophesy for three and a half years, and then they're going to be killed. And then in verse 8 it says, "...their bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which is figuratively called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified." Well, where was Jesus crucified? Jerusalem. But here in Revelation, Jerusalem is called Sodom or Egypt, figuratively. And so some are saying, well maybe this is referring to Jerusalem, since Jerusalem was figuratively called Sodom or Egypt, maybe Babylon is a figurative word for Jerusalem. Well here's what I believe, and it doesn't matter, but I actually think Babylon is Babylon, the city we know of as Babylon, and here's my only reason why. I have learned to interpret scripture by, if the scripture makes plain sense, take no other sense. In other words, interpret it literally for what it says. Unless if the scripture says the lampstands represent the churches or the stars in the, uh, in the Lord's hand represent the angels or the messengers of the church. If the, if the scripture, like in the passage here in Revelation 11, 8 says, well, that's figuratively describing Jerusalem, then we know that Sodom and Egypt aren't Sodom and Egypt, they're actually Jerusalem. So for me, I have found that the best way to interpret Scripture when you don't know is just take it for what it says. Have we not found that for years we interpreted Babylon in Revelation 17 and 18 to be we tried to make it Rome or we tried to make it this and some people tried to make it the U.S. But the longer we've lived and the more prophecies being fulfilled, we're starting to realize, you know what, Babylon might be Babylon in Revelation chapter 17 and 18. So I say to you, it doesn't really matter where he wrote it from, but if he says that it, see who's in Babylon, and it doesn't appear to be any figurative language here, Jim Johnson thinks it's Babylon. But the reason is, I try to interpret the Scripture for what it says, unless it tells me to take something else. Yes, sir. My wife Susan might be in Indiana sometimes, even though I talk to somebody and say, Susan, right. the in Indiana Right. are Right, and in, 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 in the way that it's written, in, in, in this um, translation, the NIV, it could, could the way it's written, it could be that way. But other translations don't make it sound like that as much as the NIV does. But that is a possibility as well. But like I said, does it matter where he wrote it from? No. He could have wrote it from the back seat of a Volkswagen. It's still from God. A Honda, not a Volkswagen. Honda. Sorry. Sorry. You and your one Accord, old yeah people. So, <laughs> all right. So. you want more introductory stuff, there's plenty of stuff out there. Let's get into the text because I cannot wait to get into the text. All right, let me read it to you. First Peter chapter 1, starting in verses 1 and 2. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, strangers in the world, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling by His blood. Now as you can tell, and then he ends with, grace and peace be yours in abundance, but we're going to actually make that a part of where we go next week. We'll deal with the grace and peace section next week. But as you can see from those two verses we just read, there is a lot of deep, deep, deep theology in his greeting. Now, typically when we write letters, we write dear so-and-so. And and then we sign the end. But back in that day, when people would send a letter to someone, they would put who was writing it at the start. So you'll see Paul does that, Paul and Timothy, or Paul and -and so-and-so. Here he just starts off and lets us know that he's writing. But I want to pull out something to you that you might not even just consider. Peter calls himself what? Right, but that's actually, we're we're getting there. We'll get to the Apostle part first uh, later, uh, the next thing actually. But what else does he call himself? He calls himself Peter. That's what I'm saying. Don't skip over this stuff. What was his name? His name that his mama gave him was Simon. Jesus changed his name to Peter. And I love the fact that he calls himself by his new name. Just, just fly by us, folks. There's some something deep here that I don't want you to miss. So, put a bookmark here in 1 Peter and go with me to John chapter 1. <clears throat> There's something here for us in this. So, stick with me. Now, some of you have heard me teach a little bit on this, but stay with me here. John chapter 1, look at verses 41 and 42. This is where Peter meets Jesus for the first time, or actually Simon at that time, meets Jesus for the first time in John chapter 1, verses 41 and 42. And it says, the first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, we have found the Messiah, that is, the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, son of John. John Simon Johnson, I love that. You are Simon, son of John, you will be called Cephas. Which when translated is Peter. Alright? So when Jesus meets Peter for the first time, He looks at him and says, You're called Simon, but you're going to be called Peter. Not now, but you will be sometime called Peter. In other words, you are Simon, but I see you as a rock. That's what the word Peter means. Rock man, rocky. A solid individual. Alright? Go to Matthew chapter 16 now. Look at verses 13 through 18. Matthew 16, verses 13 through 18. It said, When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, He asked His disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, Others say Elijah, And still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, He asked, Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, For this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter. This is when his name changes. When he makes his profession of his faith, at this moment he becomes, what does the Bible say in 2 Corinthians 5.17? You are a new creation. All old is gone, the new is come. He says, you are Peter, and on this rock I'll build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Now, some have tried to teach that, that Peter was the ch- what the church was built on, and that's not what the Scripture teaches. Because in the Greek here, when he says, on this rock, well, first me back up. He says, you are Peter, Petros, he, uh, he, he actually says it in the masculine, you're Peter, rock man. But then he says, on this rock I'll build my church. That word rock is in the feminine. Not talking about Peter. He's talking about his profession of his faith. On that is what he builds his church. Alright? So, but look what happened. Jesus meets Peter, or Simon at the time, and says, You are Simon, but you're going to be called Peter one day. When Peter makes his profession that you are the Christ, Jesus said, Flesh and blood didn't open your eyes to this, my Father in heaven. And now you are Peter. Now, go with me to Luke 22. Jim, if I can interrupt you Go for, for it. A uh, it's interesting that Simon means hot tempered and volatile. Yeah. And. Jesus saw him as Peter, solid as a rock, when he was still not Yes, well, you're jumping ahead of me, but that's good. But that's good. That's where we're going. That means you're with me. That's good. This, all right, Luke 22. All right, look at verses 31 to 34. This is when Jesus tells Peter that he's going to deny him. But I want you to see something here. In verse 31, this is after Jesus has already changed his name to Peter, Jesus calls him what? Simon. Simon. This is interesting. Is Jesus having a senior moment? No. no. He's not going, oh, and you know, I like with... I got three kids. And I, I'll run through a bunch of names before I get to the right one. Right? Jesus isn't doing this. He is intentionally getting Peter's attention by calling him by his old name because he's going to tell him, you're going to act like the old you. The flesh. He flesh. says, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you's wheat. But I prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. Of course, Peter replies, Lord, I'm ready to go with you to prison and to death. And I love this part. Jesus answered, I tell you, Peter. Do you see it? Before the rooster crows today, you'll deny three times that you know me. When Jesus points out, he's going to deny him. He calls him by his new name. He says, look, hey, Simon, let me get your attention. You're still in the flesh. You're still struggling against the old you. And I need to get your attention because you're going to have one of those battles. Oh, by the way, you're going to fail. Oh, no, I won't, Lord. Uh Uh-uh. I'm rock man, remember? And Jesus says, I do tell you, Peter, that you are rock man, but you're still going to deny me. I still see you as the finished product. Man. Peter probably in his flesh after he denied the Lord said, don't call me Peter, call me Simon. But he doesn't. All the way through, we see him called what? Peter. And he says, Peter is writing you this letter. Folks, I didn't want you to miss that you see it do we act like the old us sometimes yes but how does jesus see us even when we are in the flesh he sees the new us he sees the finished product by the way this is not just preaching this is going to go in the context of what i want you to see in first peter tonight because if you understand the foundation that's being laid here by the spirit of god it'll help us in our study of this book jesus sees the finished product And that's what he's working to make you become. But Peter saw himself as the finished product. I love how John described himself all through his letter as the disciple whom Jesus loved. Isn't that cool? He doesn't mention his name, yet at the same time he says, Jesus loves me. And we all struggle with the love of God. I was talking to some friends recently who had an adoptive child who had passed away. And this uh, adopted child struggled in her childhood feeling fully loved because the parents had natural born children and she was adopted. And she struggled with the fact that her parents loved her. And I was sitting there in the living room talking with this couple and they were lamenting the fact that it wasn't until the end of her life when she died that she finally understood they loved her. How could she question our love, they said. With we did this and we did that, how could she question our love? And I said, Do you ever question God's love for you? They said, Yeah. I said, How could you? With all that He's done. And I had a chance to encourage them and say, Look, it had nothing to do with you, it had everything to do with the enemy and how He whispers lies in our ears. Folks, see yourself as Jesus sees you, see yourself as loved. All that from one word, the first word of this whole book. And at this rate, we will finish in 2015. All right. There you go. Slow down. Exactly. All right. Now he also calls himself an apostle. Of Jesus Christ. Now, the word apostle actually literally means one sent or one sent as a messenger. Now, in the early church, the term did carry with it some authority as well, since the first apostles had seen Jesus in person. All right, and let me take you to an example of this. Go to 1 Corinthians 15. Paul has had to defend his apostleship because there were those who were questioning his apostleship and whether or not he was sent from God and whether or not he had the authority to, to deal with the church in the way that he did. And in 1 Corinthians 15, look at verses seven through ten. Look at how what, what Paul says here to defend his apostleship. Paul says, then, this is after he listed all the people Jesus appeared to in his resurrection. Verse seven. Then he appeared to James, and then to the, all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also, as one as to one I'm normally born. For I am the least of the apostles, and do not even deserve to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. So when Paul was defending his apostleship, he said, oh, I saw him face to face too. So a part of being an apostle, and I always, when I teach on this in churches, I say there's a difference between a capital A apostle and a small a apostle. The capital A apostles, the marks of an apostle, the Scripture says, were the signs and the wonders, and the miracles that God performed through them to give evidence of the fact they were an apostle sent by God at the beginning of the church age and all this. They also had been taught by Jesus face to face. But then we have a tendency to think that the apostles then were the only the twelve that Jesus designated to be apostles and Paul. Okay, we can, we can throw Paul in there. But no, I'm going to show you scripturally, there were others who weren't part of the twelve who were called apostles. Go to Acts chapter 14. Look at verses 1-4 uh, through 4, and then verse 14 as well. In Acts 14 verses 1-4, through 4, it says At Iconium, Paul and Barnabas went as usual into the Jewish synagogue. There they spoke so effectively that a great number of Jews and Gentiles believed. But the Jews who refused to believe stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So Paul and Barnabas spent considerable time there speaking boldly for the Lord, who confirmed the message of His grace by enabling them to do miraculous signs and wonders. The people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews, others with who? The apostles. There's, this sounds like there's two apostles. And who are the two? Paul and Barnabas. So now Barnabas is being called an apostle. Will you say, Jim, are you sure? We'll go to verse 14. It'll clear it up. But when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard of this, they tore their clothes and rushed in. So Barnabas is called an apostle as well. Now, was he? did he see Jesus face to face? We don't know. He may have, but he's an apostle. Go to Romans real quick. You're in Acts. Turn over to the book of Romans, last chapter, six, chapter 16, and look at verse uh, 7. And Paul's... Uh, greetings to a bunch of people there in the church in Rome. He says, Greet, in verse 7 of chapter 16, Greet Andronicus and Junius, my relatives who have been in prison with me. They are outstanding among the apostles, and they were in Christ before I was. So here are these two guys considered apostles as well. Again, let me just clarify this for you. I believe that there are no more capital A apostles. But I believe that God, according to Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 16... Is still using apostles to equip the church. Remember, and they gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, some to be pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry. And in that passage, as Paul is writing about the different types of men that God uses to equip the church for the work of the ministry, we've always, unfortunately, expected the pastor to do the work of the ministry. Someone need to be saved, call the pastor. Someone's sick, call the pastor. And that we've crippled what God designed the church to be because the ministers are in the room here. I'm just an equipper of the ministers. And so in that though, I don't believe that he was teaching. He doesn't use apostles anymore. He just uses prophets and evangelists and pastor teachers. It sounds like in the context that apostles are still being used by God. I'm one right now. Again, I'll never put it on my business card because it will freak people out. Jim thinks he's an apostle. you know. But at the same time, I'm sent in my traveling ministry. I go to churches on a traveling with a message and I equip the church. And there are those that God uses in this type of a ministry. And I love what He's got me doing. Peter says that he's an apostle, a sent one of Jesus Christ. And, oh, by the way, he he definitely was because, you remember, they were all scattered. (laughs) Many of them were scattered, and God continued to send them out and and go on. Uh, Missionaries are apostles. One sent with a mission uh, or a message and so on. And so when he says he's an apostle, that's what he's talking about. Now, also, he now Peter begins to move into his dressing addressing of the people that he's writing to in his audience. But as you're going to see and we're going to break this down, he describes them in many specific and very interesting ways. The first way he describes them is this. He calls them God's elect. Now I'm going to ask you to put on your thinking caps with me and pray that the Spirit of God will give you some clarity here because I'm about now to wade into some deep water. Alright? And I have to do this because it's here and I want to do this, but it's been an issue that has been debated and wrestled with by the Christians for a while. And we're going to deal with this whole predestination free will stuff. If you ever heard me reference it and talk about it, uh, you, you hopefully understand where I stand. And if you don't, you will by the time we're done here. And again, my teaching is not from human intellect. My teaching is solely from what does the Scripture say. And with that, there's going to come a point where you're going to have me, hear me say, I don't know. Nobody does. But at the same time, I will show you the whole of what the Scripture teaches. What does it mean when He calls them God's elect? Now, Here here we see in many places, as in many places in Scripture, a picture of God's choosing. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. The Scripture teaches that God does choose, does He not? Well, We go real quickly and I'll show you a quick illustration. Go to John 15, verse 16. Now, please do not run ahead of me as I teach on this. Some of you are going to sit there and say, well, I know where He's coming from. No, 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 you don't. Stay with me here, but I've got to lay the scriptural foundation here. In John chapter 15, look at verse 16. Jesus is talking to His disciples and He says what? You did not choose Me, but I chose you. And appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. Then the Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. Now, I'm going to read it again because we're coming back to this passage. At the end of my teaching on this, we're coming back to this passage. So keep keep this in mind. Jesus says, you didn't choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last, and so on. All right, now. Some have taken this to mean that God has predetermined those who will be given salvation and those who won't. There are those that think that God, before time, chose who will be saved and who won't be saved. And let me just say this, and please listen carefully. I'm going to read it to you the way I wrote it in my notes, and then I'm going to make a statement that's going to shock some of you, but you've got to stick with me. And some have taken this to mean that God has predetermined who will be given salvation and who won't. In one sense, I agree with this statement. Now again, stay with me. The Bible does teach in many places that God has predetermined many things. God chose Abraham, correct? And Israel to be the ones He revealed Himself through. He chose David to be the king. He chose Solomon to be the te- one who built the temple, not David. The Bible teaches that God does choose many things. We also understand that God has also taught us, and we're not going to go there, but in Romans chapter 9, that we need to have an attitude that says He's able to choose to do it however He wants. In Romans chapter 9, verses 22 and following, Paul says, What if God chose some to go to heaven and God chose some to go to hell to display His glory and display His wrath? He has every right to. Who are you, O clay, to say to the potter, Why did you do this? Now listen closely. Paul never says that God did choose some for heaven and some for hell. He never says that. But he does say, what if he did? And as we deal with this subject, you have to first come at it with an attitude that says he has the right to do it that way if he wants to because He's God, and this is His world. Now, we're going to build our theology, though, on what the Scripture as a whole says, not on what we think one passage might say. Too many people take a passage, and then they use human reasoning or logic to extrapolate. Well, if it's this way, then this must be that, and then this must be that, and we build our teaching not on the Scripture, but on our extrapolation of the Scripture. Okay? So, Some people say, well, I don't believe God would... No, no, no. Paul says you have to have the attitude that says he can if he wants to. Do you understand? Because that will help you actually understand what the Scripture teaches on this subject. So before you come into this debate on predestination and man's free will, you have to first say, God, whatever way you choose to do it is best. Okay? Go with it, Chris. And what he says in the word is the truth. And he won't go against his word. And that's what we're going to do now. We're going to dive into this a little bit. What and what does it say? I'm sorry, what but, does it, mean when it says no one comes to the Father he's called? Well, that's the whole point. But it again, in that passage, no one can come unless the Father who sent draws them. The next verse though says he draws everybody. In the very next verse, it says, as it says in the prophets, they all will be taught by God. Whoever listens comes to me. And I illustrate it to you this way. Those of you who have had kids, you have had kids hear you but not listen. (laughs) Did you hear that though? Everybody hears in one way, shape, form. Paul even says in Romans chapter 2, when those who haven't been given the law do the law because it's written on their hearts, God's revealed to them they're lawbreakers. God, and then he says this amazing statement that I still don't understand how it, it, it explains it, but it does in some way. And God will judge all men's secrets through Jesus Christ, as my gospel declares. Everybody hears. Not everybody listens. Those who listen, come. So, we're going to deal with this now. Alright? So what I mean, I'm going to say again, I agree with the statement in part that God has predetermined who will be given salvation and who won't. I did not say, God has predetermined who will be saved and who won't. He's predetermined who will be given salvation and who won't. Alright? Now, we also see that God has also through the Bible given, not only do we see that God chooses very clearly and that He has the right to do that, we also see in the Scriptures, and I'm going to show you some places, that God has given man the ability to choose. Correct? Let's go, let me go to Joshua chapter 24. There you go, Joshua chapter 24, look at verses 14 and 15. Verses 14 and 15, Joshua says this Now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods your forefathers worshiped beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods your forefathers served beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you're living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. Folks, it can't be any clearer. God chooses. Yet here it says, you choose. Now, some of you are going to try to make these fit. Let me help you out. Don't go there. You will hurt yourself. You will hurt yourself. And many people have created schisms in the body of Christ because of the fact... That they think they've got it figured out when they get on one side or the other. And they stand on one side and say, well, my Scriptures disprove your side. And they'll say, well, my Scriptures disprove your side. And I stand in the middle and say, both Scriptures are right. How do they go together though, Jim? They can't both be right. The Bible says they are. Scientists that know anything about science will tell you that it's impossible for anything to be in... Well, let me just use light for example. It's, it's, it's impossible for light to be both in waves and particles. It's scientifically impossible. But guess what? Light is in both waves and particles. Let me ask you another question. How many of you believe that Jesus was 100% God when He was on the cross? Hopefully all of us. But the Bible says that He was separated from Himself. When he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He experienced the separation from the Father. He experienced hell. How can God separate himself from himself? I don't know. I can't explain it, but I believe it because the Bible teaches it. Do you understand? God sovereignly is the actor in salvation, and he chooses. And Paul says, you've got to believe that he can do it however he wants. And we need to trust him. Oh, but the Bible also says, you choose. Let me show you another example of you choose. Go to Matthew 23. Joshua did not stand before the Israelites that day and say, it's already been predetermined who's going to be good and who's going to be bad. He said, you choose. But in Matthew 23, we see something even more clear. Here's Jesus Himself. Look at verse 37. Jesus stood and looked over to Jerusalem. He said, O oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. But you were not willing. Did you hear what Jesus said? I wanted to, but you wouldn't let me. Oh, there are some that say, well, Jim, uh, if, if man has the ability to choose, then he's more powerful than God. Well, that's extrapolating. The Bible says that God has given man the ability to choose. And I actually say to those people that say that, that man's ability to choose takes away God's sovereignty, I'll say, you're thinking that God isn't sovereign enough to have it both be together And work shows that you take away God's sovereignty. God's big enough and powerful enough to have both of these work together. But we're getting somewhere toward this God's elect thing. We're just laying the foundation. What I want you to see in Scripture is what has been predetermined by God is the how of salvation and the what of salvation and of His choosing, not the who. I'm going to say it again. And I'm going to show you some Scriptures that show you this. What has been predetermined by God is the how and the what of God's choosing, not the who. Nowhere in Scripture does the Bible teach that God has predetermined who will be chosen in the sense of specific people, but He's predetermined the how they will be chosen and the what of what of their being cho- cho- chosen. Let me show you what I'm talking about. Go to uh, John chapter 14. Well, we don't have to turn there. Let's just quote it. John chapter 14, verse 6. Jesus said, "What?" I'm the way and the truth and the life and what? No one comes to the Father except through me. Right. Now, that, is that predetermined? Yes. Yeah. The how has been predetermined. God is predetermined. The only way you're going to come to Him is through Jesus Christ. Let me give you another example of that in Ephesians. Go to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. This is one of those passages that people try to use to say that God chose who would be saved. And if you look closely, you'll see that's not quite what it says. We'll start in Ephesians chapter 1, look at verses 3 and following. It says, Praise be to the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For He chose us in Him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in His sight. In love, He predestined us to be adopted as His sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with His pleasure and will. You could read it that He's predestined us. But if you look closely, it's really saying He predestined us to be what? Adopted as His sons through Jesus Christ. Remember? There's only one thing that's been predetermined in that aspect of how people would be saved, and that's through faith in Jesus Christ. What has been predetermined is that we would come through Jesus Christ. Some people say that it just says he chose us. Then that means he chose us. We no, no, no. In a sense, he did, and we're going to get to that. But right now, I want you to hear what was predetermined is that we were to be adopted through Jesus Christ. Someone said, "Well, I think I can get to God through this way, or I think I can get to God by good works." No, the Bible says it was predetermined that we would come through Jesus. That's what was predetermined. Now, let me show you another example. Go to Romans chapter eight, verse twenty-nine. It says, For those God foreknew, and we'll get to that in a second too in Peter, For those God foreknew He also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. What was predestined in this verse? That we be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. What was predestined, again, is the what? What's been predestined is the How? And the what? He not only predestined that if you would come, you come through Jesus. He also predestined that if you come to him through Jesus, he is going to conform you to the image of Jesus Christ. Now I'll get right to you, Chris, but stick with stick with that. Keep that in your mind, because that's going to be very important to where we're going in the rest of the study. Go ahead, Chris. So the other half of this is the the part of God's is Exactly. And that's what that's the next part we're going to pull out here in First Peter. Because of his foreknowledge, he's made a lot of other choices already. Yes. And Chris actually helped us make that transition here. Did you catch that? And, and go back to First Peter. You'll see. We'll jump down to the rest, um, verse 2. It says, Who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling by His blood. What Chris is pointing out is, because of God's foreknowledge... The fact that God sees everything already as now, God knows ahead of time, if you will, because that's why He's able to tell Abraham, your descendants are going to be into slavery for 400 years and they're going to come out with great wealth. Peter, you'll deny you'll even know me for the rooster crows three times. How does He know all this stuff? Because He already saw it. He's God, and it makes us... How can He see something that hasn't happened yet? He, he's not only outside of time, I can't explain it. I just can't. The Bible says that he knows. So, because of the fact that he's already seen it all, does he know who's going to respond and who's not? But the Bible says they still have a choice. I had a man tell me one time, he said, uh, Jim, well, if God already knows what tie I'm going to wear tomorrow, I really don't have a choice. I get you, still trying to use human reasoning and logic. The Bible says you do have a choice, and you better make the right choice. Don't go with the pink one. But, But what I'm saying is this. Some are saying that this foreknowledge is predetermining. No. Foreknowledge means this. God's knowledge of things before they happen. Alright? But look closely at what we were chosen for then, according to His foreknowledge. We've missed this. We get all caught up in this predestination free will stuff. Look at what we've been chosen for. Does anybody see it? For what? Well, According to this passage, what have we been chosen for? Obedience. Did you catch that? Remember... Because of God's foreknowledge... Now, God chose ahead of time how people would be saved, and there's only one way, and that's through Jesus Christ. He's chosen ahead of time that those who would be saved through faith in Jesus Christ would be conformed into Jesus Christ's image. That's what God's Spirit is at now. He's not only just saving you and putting you on a shelf, His Spirit has come to indwell you to make you more like Jesus. To allow the Jesus that comes to live within you to actually have control of you so that your flesh wins less and less and less and you become more and more like Jesus. Not you acting like Jesus on your own, but Jesus inside of you being being able to live His life through you as you yield to Him in faith and that's His purpose. That's why the Spirit's in you. That's predetermined. Oh, and by the way, because God knew ahead of time who was going to be His, He chose them to be all this stuff. (laughs) And that's why people can call you the elect. I've been chosen, folks. But it wasn't that I was chosen because of my merit, I was chosen because of God's plan. Oh, and I want you to hear this for a reason. When you see yourself not as someone that you chose Christ, see, now you're getting the pat on the back and he owes you. Hey, God, I picked you. No, 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 no. Doesn't work like that, he says. I chose you. Oh, and when He chose me, He chose me for a reason. See, we've been saved by faith and not of works. It's a gift of God, so no one can boast. But then He goes on and says, We are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works which He prepared in advance for us to do. When He saved me, He said, Oh, this is just the beginning, my friend. I've got a lot that I have predetermined I want to do through you. That's why Paul could say in Galatians chapter 1 when he described his relationship with Jesus that God who set him apart from birth as the preacher to the Gentiles. God knew what Paul was going to do before Paul even knew there was a God. Folks, I don't want you to see yourself as someone who chose Jesus. He chose you. And He chose you for a reason. For the sake of time, I'm just going to quote to you again. Remember John 15, 16. You didn't choose me. I chose you. And what? This is why I wanted you to see that verse. And appointed you to go bear fruit. Fruit that will last. I didn't just choose you and say, Hey, aren't you glad I picked you in my team? No, no, no. I chose you so that you would bear fruit. There's a reason why I saved you. In 2 Corinthians, I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20, it says, You were bought with a price. You're not your own. therefore glorify God with your body. In Second Corinthians five fifteen it says that we well, I want to read it to you. I love how they put it, and I might quote it a little bit cloudy, and I don't want it to be cloudy. Look at Second Corinthians five verse fifteen. And He died for all. Who? Did He die for? Right. He died for everyone, folks. Don't let anybody tell you He died only for the elect. That's not what the Bible teaches. They'll try and tell you that Jesus only died for the ones who are going to be saved. And they say because if he, died only for, if he died for everybody, then His death wasn't fully powerful. It couldn't save everybody. Oh, again, human reasoning, not Scripture. Because it says in 1 John 2, 2, that Jesus died not only for our sins, but the sins of the entire world. And I've talked to people about it, and they say, well, all doesn't mean all there. No, all means all. All There are those that say that God, if He chose to save you, you can't resist His grace. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 23? I wanted to, but you wouldn't let me. We also have Stephen, right before he was stoned, said this, You stiff-necked individuals, how long will you resist the Holy Spirit? Some theologians will tell you His grace is irresistible. Stephen said it wasn't. It is resistible. You have the ability to choose. Well, how can it be both? I don't know. God sovereignly makes it so that you can be saved. The Bible says He gives us the faith. But if I say no, it's because I was given the ability to say yes or no, not because I didn't have a choice. And here in 2 Corinthians 5.15, look what it says, "...and He died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves." but for Him who died for them and was raised again. Folks, you were chosen according to the foreknowledge of God for obedience to Jesus Christ. Kind of changes your perspective a little bit, doesn't it? It's no longer, yeah, I chose Jesus. I received Jesus. Oh no, it's not about you. No, you didn't find Him. He sought you and He chose you. Doesn't take away your responsibility before Him if you choose, if you say no. But at the same time, once you enter into this relationship by faith, please don't think that you're done. Jesus says, "Oh no, that's just the beginning. I've got a preordained plan to conform you into my Son's image." Oh, and by the way, if his plan is to conform us into the image of Jesus Christ, what will he be working on, whether we want him to or not? Conforming us to the image of Jesus Christ. Um, If we resist him, who's going to win? He's got all of the resources of the universe at his disposal to win the battle. That might mean you losing your job. It might mean you losing your health. It might mean lots of things that he could do to conform you to the image of his son. Now, that's not his first choice, folks. As a parent, when you raise your children in discipline and mold and shape your children, your prayer is that they will respond when you say, Hey, this is best for you. Eat your vegetables. You don't want to have to say, It'll be there at breakfast some of you have said that. Why? Because you had to up the ante a little bit to get them to conform to what it is you were trying to do. And your Heavenly Father says to you, I love you. I'm your chi- you're my child. I'm your Father. Would you please listen to me? Everything I have to say to you here in this book is for your best. Stop resisting it and trust me. If you don't, I'm still going to plan to conform you to the image of my Son and I'll have to change tactics. Everything He does is from His love. He's a loving Father, we saw in Hebrews chapter 12. The sooner we, we respond, the better. He then goes on and calls us, and we're running out of time here. He calls us strangers in the world. Now, we're not going to spend much time on this because we'll be doing this a lot in our study of 1 Peter. But these are the ones who have been scattered all over Asia Minor, which is now modern Turkey. Keep in mind that God is the one who orchestrates our scattering, folks. I-, I-, I want you to keep this in mind. They've been scattered, and it wasn't some whimsical, oh, this, does God even know what happened to me? We give Satan a whole lot more credit than, he, ha- than he, de- he deserves. Satan can do nothing to God's child without God's permission. So when you say Satan's messing with you, you should say it this way. My father has allowed Satan to mess with me. And when my father said yes to Satan... And being allowed to mess with me. My father has a reason why he's allowed Satan to mess with me. And he's using Satan to shape me. And I need to go to my father and yield to what my father's plan is. Do you understand? And, and again, write this down and look at it later on. In Acts chapter 17, verse 26, Paul speaking to the Areopagus there in Mars Hill. And he says this. He says, the God who made this world determined when you would be born and the exact places where you would live. Did you catch that? God determined when you would be born and the exact places you would live. How many people have said over the years, man, I wish I had lived in such and such a time. I'll say, don't waste your breath. God said, you're supposed to be born now. This is the time. This is the time that God chose for Jim Johnson to be alive, and I'm excited to find out what it is he wants to do through me, and I want to live it to the full. In Proverbs 16:9, it says, uh, the, the man plans his way, right? What does the rest of that verse say? But the Lord directs his steps. I want this to sink into you so you can understand where we're going. You are not haphazardly going through life. And most of us, when stuff happens, we say, where is God? Peter starts off this whole book to people who were scattered, who were were receiving tremendous persecution. We're probably wondering, where's God? And he starts off by saying this, Hey, you were chosen. And not by accident. And according to God's foreknowledge, He chose you to be obedient. And He's got a plan for your life. Oh, and right now, when you're saying, Where's God? You're in the center of His plan for your life. You will find things a little smoother if you stop, as it says in the King James, as Paul, God said to, to Paul, kicking against the goads. Remember that? It's hard to kick against the goads. Now, if you don't understand that illustration, uh, when you wanted an animal to go in a certain direction, let's say you got spurs on, and you want it to turn right, but it wants to turn left, you have spurs. And the spurs are to tell the horse and the bit in the mouth, I want you to turn right. The horse can still try to turn left, but it's hard to kick against the goads. God says to us, He says to Paul, it's hard for you to kick against the goads. In other words, you can resist me if you want, but I'm going to win. Even if it means I have to take you home. The Bible does not. The Bible teach that there are those who are sick and those who are dead because of their disobedience. Paul even says, I'm sorry, not Paul, but John says later on in the book of 1 John, he says, there are sins unto death. He says, pray and they'll be healed. But he says, but I'm not talking about sins unto death. If a person has sinned to the point where God's going to take them home early, you can pray all you want. They're going home early. Yes, ma'am. You know, it's um, a hard thing when you um, are praying for people, you know, like family, all the time, for them to come to know Christ, they don't. Yep. And so now you're like, okay, so they're never going to be called? Oh, no, they're called. It doesn't mean they listen. You see what I'm saying? I'm not saying that if God calls someone, they're going to be saved. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that God calls everyone, and they have the ability to say yes or no, and all we do is pray that they respond. God, draw them by your Spirit in such a way that they realize it's you, and, that they, and we pray that they'll respond. But we can't. if we took the Scripture to say that if we pray and ask God to save somebody that they're going to be saved, we can't can't go there. But I can tell you this much. Once you've, someone has said yes and responded in faith to Jesus Christ and entered into that covenant relationship, God will finish what He started. That's why Paul said in Philippians 1, 6 i I'm confident of this very thing, that He who began this good work in you will finish it. Well, how do you know, Paul? They could kick against the goats. Oh, He'll finish it. Well, it might happen not as much here as He had planned. Go ahead. Paul had information from him. Yes, he did have information for Ananias and. Ananias and Sapphira, I believe, without question, are believers. Ananias and Sapphira. Oh, you're talking about, yes, it was the Ananias that prayed for him as well. I'm thinking of the Ananias and Sapphira. They, they ran against the... I 15 and 16 where, it, uh, where he tells Ananias to go to Paul because he's going to preach to uh, the Gentiles. Gentiles. And I'll tell him how much he has to suffer. Yep, Exactly. So I'm going to bring the study to a close here because I don't want to rush through the next part. And we'll just pick up next week here because I want to spend our time next week really looking in detail at the fact that not only has he described us as the elect chosen by God's foreknowledge for obedience, but also strangers in this world. And like I say, we'll deal with that a lot more uh, later on. He then goes in and describes... God's work in the lives of His children. And He describes it in two ways here. He describes the sanctifying work of the Spirit and the sprinkling of His blood. If at all you can be here next week, be here next week as we take a look at what that really means because I cannot wait to show you because honestly as excited as I've been about all this, I've been more excited about sanctifying work of the Spirit and sprinkling with His blood and i got to wait till next week. We just can't get there. But it's tied to the grace and the peace. And it's tied to the next verse. But for tonight, let's just stop and let the Spirit of God let this sink into our heads. You were chosen for a reason. God has a plan for your life, and you're not haphazardly wandering through this universe. There's no need ever to say, where is God? But I would say to you, as the Bible teaches us, to lay yourselves on the altar every day, which is your spiritual act of worship, or your reasonable service. Don't be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world, which is me first, living for self. But be transformed with the daily renewing of your mind. You were bought with a price, and he's working on you. Well, I don't see it. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. He's got a plan, and his timing and his purpose are, are perfect. Like I told you at the beginning of this time, before the recorder turned on, this past weekend I saw in Chicago and a lady got to see in Chicago all that God did that she didn't think was happening. You may not see it right now, but it's happening. And some of us that hang around you actually can see it happening. You're getting there. Let him finish what he started. Let me pray for us. Father, it's so hard for the preacher and me to stop at this point because I want to be like Paul, and and I want to preach all into the night and into the morning. And my my brain says there's no third-story windows, so if anybody falls out, I don't have to worry about them dying. But I feel like you want us to stop for right now and allow this truth to sink in before we move to the next. Father, I pray by your Spirit we would put to rest trying to understand how you sovereignly choose, yet at the same time we have been given the ability to choose. Lord, we don't know how that fits together, but your Word says they're both there, and so we leave it at that. Father, at the same time, when we do see that Your Word says that we've been chosen, we see specifically we've been chosen for a reason. Obedience to Jesus Christ. Father, help us to really understand the depth of this true, deep theology so that it will calm us down in the midst of our trials, in the midst of our struggles, in the midst of the latest thing that happens that we don't understand. That we would rest in the fact that what Peter said in the beginning of this book should be able to hold us as we deal with the trials that come to prove our faith genuine. Father, may everyone in this room be settled on the issue of whether or not they're your child through faith in Jesus Christ. And may they be settled on the fact that you have a plan and you have a purpose and you will do it. And it will be easier the sooner we just say, your will be done. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.